We're in a series on uh, Proverbs, and we're unusually for Grace Church. We're not reading all the texts at the start. We're going to read them as we go through this message, just in case you're wondering. Now, there's an old English saying, an old English proverb, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will... Names will never hurt me. Names will never harm me. Of course, it's not true. In fact, that proverb is a load of rubbish. Names will harm me. Names do harm me. They harm you. Other people's words have the definite capacity to cause injury. And so do my words. And so do yours. I well remember uh, going to my bedroom in tears and crying as a young boy over something that someone had said. And my dad came in, gently sat on the bed, asked what the matter was, listened to the uh, sobbing story, and he then said, well, Mike, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will always hurt me. They will always hurt. Now, you may be one of those people who has a thick skin and not much gets to you, but even if you have the emotional skin of a rhino... Words do get to you, don't they? They do. I got into numerous fights as a boy growing up on the streets of Tyneside, and I had my share of sticks and stones and black eyes and bleeding noses, but I don't remember much about any of those fights. Uh, But I will never forget the words of a youth leader when I was 13 years old. I was skinny, and I was wearing, as was fashionable in those days, a sleeveless T-shirt. And he took one look at me and said, when I was a kid, boys with arms as thin as that used to cover them up. I was ashamed of my arms for years. One sentence, 35 years ago, still remember it. Words are powerful. The Bible recognizes this. In fact, at the level of grand theology, the Bible teaches that the universe was spoken into being. Genesis 1 says, as you know, in the beginning God said, let there be light, and there was light. Our God is a speaking God. His words have creative power. He never lies. More than that, when God made himself known to us personally by coming into our world and joining himself with our humanity, becoming enfleshed, he was described as the word made flesh. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, the eternal Son, is the Word of God. Words don't get much more personal or powerful than that. Now the book of Proverbs is a part of the Bible called Wisdom Literature and it's built on this foundation of the great God who speaks words of power. But Proverbs deals with the small details of life, the nitty-gritty the things that we have to engage with day by day. And we've noticed already in this series how Proverbs addresses those areas of life where you don't have a rule book, where it's not clear, it's not black and white. You know, 95% of our lives are made up of small decisions in the grey areas. How do we live well? How do we choose what to do in this situation or how to relate to this person or what to say in this context? How do we acquire the skill to live well? The answer is wisdom. Wisdom. And Proverbs is wisdom calling out and inviting us to pursue her, 
to seek her, to make her our own, to sell everything we have to get wisdom. And Proverbs has a lot to say about words, about speech. One scholar has counted more than 90 Proverbs in this book that are to do with speech. And if you're using the excellent uh, devotional book that we've sold at the church recently, uh, The Way of Wisdom, you will notice that at the moment uh, the book is looking at and studying and meditating on words. In fact, Tim and Kathy, the authors of that book, have 27 days in a row all devoted to Proverbs about words. So we could spend a very long time on this. And we haven't got that much time. We're going to just dip our toes in the water today. But let me encourage you to carry on this conversation about words in your midweek groups, with close friends, and in your own private devotions. I've got four points about words. And you should have um, a paper, a sheet on your seat that uh, is this kind of format. Hopefully you've got one. Just pass them around if you don't. And all the texts are on there. Four points. The power of words. Words bring life, words bring death, the source of words. The power of words, words bring life and death, and the source of words. Firstly, the power of words. Now look, if you only remember one thing from today, one proverb, here it is. It's chapter 18, verse 21. This is our key text. You ready? The tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. The tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Now, the tongue is a fairly small organ. I have discovered, with the help of Wikipedia, that the average length of a human tongue, from the oropharynx to the tip, is 10 centimeters. It's only little. The average weight of the human tongue from adult males is 70 grams, and for females, 60 grams. Such a small thing. 70 gram, 10 centimeter, 60 gram little organ. And yet, what damage the tongue can cause. The Apostle James in the New Testament recognizes this. He comments on how small the tongue is and how big its influence is. He says this, chapter 3, when we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Small bit can control a big horse. Or take ships as an example. Although they're very so large and they're driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body. It sets the whole course of one's life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. (laughs) This is so strong. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, which we've just been doing, and with it, we curse human beings who've been made in God's likeness. Whoa! The tongue is so powerful. Words are so powerful. Proverbs says it has the power of life and death. Why is it so powerful? Two reasons. Penetration 
and propagation. Penetration. What is done to you doesn't compare to what is done in you. Things that are done in you can be for good or ill. We will see later on that clumsy words can pierce and wound a person's feelings and strip their confidence and undermine their morale. Our attitude to another person can be deeply shaped and affected by a whisper of gossip. Our self-esteem may be pumped up and ruined by false flattery or blown to pieces by harsh criticism. And our beliefs, our convictions are formed by words. They penetrate to the core of who we are. Words penetrate, they also propagate. Words don't just go down deep, they also spread far and wide. Proverbs warns that a scoundrel's speech is like a scorching fire. You know, a fire, once a fire starts, it goes anywhere. It can, it can sort of leap into different places and it's hard to control it. You don't know where the damage is going to end up. A perverse person, Proverbs says, can stir up a conflict that's destructive. Words pass from one person to another. Do you know how many people it takes to split a church? Not half the congregation, just two. One to start spreading the fiery negativity and the other one to listen and pass it on instead of challenging and confronting the sin there and then. Words are so powerful. You know, our generation is in grave danger because the power of our words is amplified, for good or ill. We can produce more words and send more words faster and further than anyone in history through electronic communication. But many of us are becoming less and less reflective on what we're saying. It is time for a course correction, isn't it? Especially if Christians are to live distinctive lives and be salt and light in the city and in the society. Our words must be very different to the world around. But I fear that at the moment our words are shaped by the culture. The culture's harshness, the culture's crudeness, the culture's contempt. The tongue has the power of life and death. It's powerful, right? Okay, point two. Let's think about the power to bring life. Words bring life. Oh, what a wonderful thing. Look, just think about this. No matter what, who you are, you know, in your status or your job, no matter what your educational level, no matter actually how eloquent you are, your words can refresh another person's soul. Your words can encourage someone and lift them up, lift up the, the head that's gone down and give them strength for the journey. Your words can build a person up. Your words can strengthen someone for the fight. Your words can sanctify and help a person become more holy. Your words can train and coach someone to live wisely. Your words can heal. You know, words can heal wounds. So powerful to give life. Here are five marks of life-giving words from Proverbs. They are honest, calm, apt, kind, and few. Honest, calm, apt, kind, and few. Look with me again at the sheet. Firstly, honest words. Two Proverbs. Kings take pleasure in honest lips. They value the one who speaks what is right. And then in chapter 24, an honest answer is like a kiss on the lips. 
kings and rulers. Now, these are people who, who, who have a lot of power, have a lot of influence, have a lot of resources. They can afford to buy almost anything. But, you know, there is one thing they need that money can't buy, and that is honesty. That's why people in power have often ended up being sympathetic to Christians and listening to Christians, even when the powerful person isn't a Christian believer at all. Because powerful people know that they need to be surrounded with integrity, and integrity is very hard to come by, especially the more powerful you become. Honesty is worth its weight in gold. What is it? Well, on, on one level, obviously, honesty is speaking the truth not lying. It's speech that corresponds to reality, to the actual facts, and doesn't twist things or shade the truth or reinvent reality. It's truthful. But we have to be a little bit deeper than that if we're going to have truly honest speech. We shouldn't just consider that a statement is factually accurate, but what it is intended to do in the other person's life. Because, you know, you can say something that is technically true, but it's stated in such a way that it misleads the other person. We learn to do this when we're very young. Saying something that's technically true, but stated in such a way that it misleads the person. And that is a deep level of dishonesty. It is not enough to give factually true statements and then say to yourself, I didn't tell a lie. The real issue is, did you deceive that person? Did you spin and give them a distorted view of events? Did you shade the truth a bit just by misrepresenting a situation or somebody else? When you're at work, those of you who go out to, to work, you are under considerable pressure, I guess, to deceive, aren't you? Especially if you're in a sales role. We're always under pressure to deceive our line manager into thinking we're doing a better job than we are. But words, words that bring life must be honest. 24 verse 26, an honest answer is just like a kiss on the lips. You know, I can still remember the first time I kissed my wife-to-be. I haven't asked her permission for this illustration. We'll just have to see how it goes. <laughs> you know, we had agreed at the start of dating that we weren't going to kiss for the first six months so that that wouldn't be a distraction or a temptation in our relationship. We would we'd be able to talk and get to know each other without that. So we waited a long time, and I still remember that first kiss. It was an unforgettable experience. I think it was raining, but I felt like there was a glowing aura around me that kept the rain off. And I was walking on the ground, but actually it felt like I was walking six inches off the ground. I was just floating around, Kingston-upon-Thames. A kiss on the lips. <laughs> Why is it so powerful? Because a kiss is intimate. A kiss is accepting. Uh, it's the most warm and accepting gesture, isn't it? It says, I, I love you and I accept you. This is why Judas Iscariot's kiss of Jesus was so treacherous. And Jesus knew it. An honest answer, it says here, is like a kiss on the lips. It is an intimate act of love to another person to speak honestly to them. If you do it with love, and lying, therefore, is a betrayal of love. We were talking to a friend of ours, a non-believing friend this week, and I was telling her about Proverbs and said, you know, Proverbs says an honest answer is like a kiss on the lips. And she said, yeah, an honest answer is like a punch in the face as well. 
<laughs> Proverbs is great for starting conversations with people, by the way, because everyone's interested in it. Now, if our words are going to be honest and not to feel like a punch in the face, then we need to think about a few more considerations, don't we? The second one is that the words have to be calm. Calm words. Chapter 17, verse 27 on the sheet. The one who has knowledge uses words with restraint, and whoever has understanding is even-tempered. Even-tempered. Now, this depends to a large measure on our spirit. A hot-tempered person is impatient, impulsive, a little bit out of control, and insists on speaking their mind right away. Such a person rarely listens properly and often interrupts. They are too busy generating their own words to think about what the other person is saying or feeling. But a person who has control over their spirit, it says here, is even-tempered. They're calm and they exercise patience even if they don't feel like it. Now, there are many, many benefits to staying calm in speech. Oh, how we need it. It gives people time for a fair hearing. It allows time for tempers to cool. And calm speech is powerful. It's really powerful. Look at the next two proverbs. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Through patience, a ruler can be persuaded, and a gentle tongue can break a bone. What is he saying? Calm speech is very powerful. I was talking this week to a school teacher in our church. She's a senior manager in a, in a senior school, inner city school. She shared how when she started in the profession, she used to find she, she had to be very hard-hitting, sometimes harsh in her speech to, to kind of let the students know who was boss. And, and it, it was a hard-hitting environment. But she said, I've actually, as the years have gone by, I've modified that. And I now find that gentle speech is much more effective because it, uh, exp it allows people room to, to open up and to say, state the truth of a situation, which often isn't as clear as you thought it was at first. It doesn't, it doesn't risk pushing them away and alienating them. The gentleness actually invites them in. And even if it ends up in discipline, the person has been respected. Very wise. Not only do words need to be calm and gentle, you know, they also need to be well chosen well chosen, suited to the occasion, the specific occasion which we are addressing, the right word for the right time, the appropriate word, and a single short word for it is apt. Here it is, the third uh, mark of good speech, words that bring to life, is that words are apt. Here we are again on the sheet. A person finds joy in giving an apt reply, and how good is a timely word. Like an earring of gold or an ornament of fine gold is the rebuke of a wise judge to a listening ear. One of the great scholars on the book of Proverbs is a man called uh, Derek Kidner. He's, he's uh, now gone to be with the Lord, but Kidner writes in his wonderful book, a truth that makes no impression as a generalization may be indelibly fixed in the mind when it is matched to its occasion and shaped to its task. Let me say it again. A truth that makes no impression at all as a generalization may be fixed in the mind when it's matched to the occasion and shaped to the task. A well-shaped word. How, to have such wise speech. Some years ago, my wife and I were concerned about one of our children. 
this a child was, was coming under the influence of some peers at school and, and these peers had a lot of, of shaping influence on them and they were, they were, they were changing behavior and, and speech and the way that the child was acting and we felt, you know, this is really difficult because we can see the child's heart is going after these friends and going away from God. But if we are too controlling as parents, we will only make matters worse, but we can't say nothing. It's like that, isn't it, parenting? So we sought the counsel of my father and explained the situation to him, and he said one sentence. Well, perhaps they have to go through it in order to see through it. Perhaps the child needs to go, th go through this in order to see through it. Absolutely right. Wisdom for that moment that shaped our parenting. We let go, and the child did go through it and saw through it. Okay, apt words. They're well chosen, but they have great impact because they're the right thing to say for that person in that context at that moment. And you can only find such words by getting into the habit of listening carefully, by getting into the habit of controlling your own responses, reflecting, Praying, even while you're talking to someone, praying about them and about the situation. And then, with great care, being slow to speak. Apt words. They're worth their weight in gold. And apt words will be shaped, won't they, by kindness. This is the fourth observation about words that bring life. Kindness. Look at the bottom of the left-hand side. Anxiety weighs down the heart, but a kind word cheers it up. Now, this is a lovely proverb that reminds us again of the penetrating power of our words. You can heal with your words. Even by the things you say, you can cheer another person's heart. And the contrast here is with anxiety, that wearing burden of the soul that so many of us carry all day long. Who is there among us here who is never anxious? It weighs down the heart, it says here. It does. It weighs you down. Sometimes you've been anxious about something. You don't even re realize it until you speak to someone. But a kind word is pleasant and sweet, timely and thoughtful, and intended for the other person's benefit. Apostle Paul gives a test for our words in Ephesians 4.29. He says, all our words must benefit those who listen according to their needs. So the kind word is for the other person's needs. And you'll only know how to say it if you've taken the time and care to think about who they are and where they are. And of course, kindness is especially true if you have to say something hard to someone. Paul says in another place, we need to speak the truth with love. And speaking the truth is difficult for us, but we have to do it in love and therefore being care careful to be kind. Test your words before you say them and slow down. We have to learn some discipline in our communication, especially when the heat is on. Slow down. Ask yourself, what is the goal of this message I am about to send? Why am I actually saying this or writing it? And it's crucial to ask this, especially when you are about to confront somebody. Why are you really saying it? Because there's a huge difference between a ministry mindset and a selfish mindset. In a ministry mindset, I want the person to know the impact of their conduct. I want them to grow. 
I want to see Christ formed in them. I'm not trying to pay them back. I want, and I also want to check on my perception because I'm probably off. But a selfish mindset is I want to pay them back. I want to show them I'm right. I want to make them feel some heat. I want to get them to back off. See the difference? You can actually say the same words but with such a different spirit that one will build a person up and the other will crush them. Criticisms made with a former motive, a ministry mindset, would be painful, but they will lead to growth on the part of the other person. But criticisms made with a selfish spirit will always cause hurt and damage and generate more heat than light. What's your motive behind your speech? And fifthly, words are, wise words are few. Look on the other side there. Even I love this, and I've lived a long time on it. Even fools are thought wise if they keep silent and discerning if they hold their tongues. Sin is not ended by multiplying words, but the prudent hold their tongues. This may be a little bit surprising, given how important words are, but Proverbs says that that, uh, words that give life will actually be few. We were talking about these Proverbs last week in our midweek group, and one of the brothers confessed, I've lived a long time on the strength of this advice, just being a fool who keeps silent. And people think I'm wise. And I had to agree with him. But this is obviously a point being made with irony, isn't it? Wise people don't shoot their mouth off and generate lots of words. They're careful and measured. There's an old English saying, least said, soonest mended. There are times when it's best not to say too much. And a wound will heal. There's a lot of wisdom in that, especially in our time of hyper-connectivity and oversharing. Sometimes the less said, the less ammunition for a person who actually wishes you ill. Reticence may save a friendship. You don't always have to speak your mind and get it all out on the table. You don't always have to do that. Another proverb says, whoever derides their friend has no sense, but one who has understanding holds their tongue. Chapter 10, verse 19 there, makes the point that when our words run away with us, they often run us into folly, arrogance, and even sin. Wise words will be honest, but calm, apt, and kind. And they will probably be few. The tongue has the power of life and death. We've thought about how words can bring life. What a, what a wonderful gift. But there is a shadow side, and it's this, and we have to look at it, uh, words can bring death. Words can bring death. Vince Foster was the Deputy White House Counsel in the, Clinton, the Bill Clinton administration. In July 1993, he was found dead in a park in Virginia, outside Washington, uh, dead from a, shot, a, a gunshot wound to the head. His death was ruled a suicide by five official investigations. The draft of a resignation letter was found in his briefcase. The letter had been written and, and printed, but then t- torn up into pieces. And they put together the pieces, and they found the story of a man who had been torn apart, uh, torn apart by lies. And the letter begins with the words, I made mistakes from ignorance, inexperience, and overwork. Haven't we all done that? And the letter ends with this sentence. I was not meant for the job and the spotlight of public life in Washington. Here, ruining people is considered a sport. Ruining people is considered a sport. 
And that is how social media is increasingly working in our generation, ruining people for fun. How do we ruin people? With words. Words killed Vince Foster a long time before the bullet went through his head. Here are five sobering proverbs that reveal how our words bring death to other people and to ourselves. Now, we could have spent a lot longer on this, and maybe we'll have to come back to it, but are you ready for these proverbs? First one, the words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. The image here is of a sword. You ever seen a sword? I held a sword on a street market in New York City recently. I don't know how they were able to sell a samurai sword on the streets. Anyway, there it was. I realized I couldn't get it in my hand luggage, so I put it back on the table. But a sword, my word, whacking great piece of sharp metal. The damage you can do with a sword, just flinging it around the place. And the cruel and clumsy thrusts and slashes of reckless words wound a person and lacerate them. And who can bear a wounded spirit? You know, there are some children who endure years and years of criticism and nitpicking and being pulled down by their parents or one of their parents and their spirit is wounded for life. They never recover. I've met lots of people like this. I remember one friend of mine, a, Quite brilliant, one of those people you think he's probably got two brains, you know? How, do, how can you be that clever? And he got a, a, I think a double first class degree from Oxford, went on to do a PhD. In his A levels, and this is going back a few years, he got three A's, and this was in the days when an A was the best, you know, he didn't have A star. Three A's, but there was also a thing called an S level, which was a sort of special paper above the A level, and he did three of those as well. And in the three S levels, he got grade one, grade one, and grade two. Now, that's pretty impressive. Three A's and three S levels, one, one, and two. And I said to him one time, what's the one thing you remember your dad saying to you when you were growing up? And as quick as a flash, he replied, when I went home and told him my results, he said one thing, what happened to the two? What does that do to a young person's spirit? Reckless, thoughtless words that don't think about the impact they're having on the other person and on their heart. We're all guilty of this. The words of the reckless pierce like swords. So let me ask, have you seen this wounding power of rash words in your own life? And where are you guilty of it? Where are you guilty of speaking rashly? words bring death. Secondly, the words of a gossip are like choice morsels. They go down to the inmost parts. Huh. The image here is of food, isn't it? A choice morsel, a tasty treat. That thing, whatever it is, that just that lovely bit of food you can't resist. Whether you're a sweet tooth and it's that exquisite bit of chocolate, or whether you're a savory tooth person, Gossip is like this, he says. It's like a, a, a choice morsel, and it, you enjoy the taste of it. Mmm, so good. You sort of enjoy it, and then you swallow it, and it goes down to the inmost parts. 
let's be honest, at some level, we all quite like gossip. That's why it's so popular. It makes the speaker look good because they're passing on something about someone else. And it makes the other person who's being gossiped about look really bad. So what's at play here is a power dynamic of superiority and inferiority. And if we're listening into the gossip, we have this extra frisson of pleasure that we're not the one gossiping, but we're kind of enjoying it vicariously by listening in on this other person's misery or failure or sin or whatever it is and the way it's being described. And it says here that it goes down to the inmost parts. In other words, it goes into who you are to your center, your heart, and it shapes you and it shapes how you view reality. And the gossip may be true but its function is to undermine another person. Now, there is a difference between gossip that is creating a dynamic of superiority and undermining another person and a fair, discerning account of some behavior that has to be shared. There is a difference between those two, and the difference is wisdom. I can't give you the rule book. That's the whole point of Proverbs. So, questions for us. Are you able to spot gossip, smell it, Somebody starts. Something about the tone, even the body language. They're sharing this thing. I, I don't think I should have this tasty morsel. And let me ask, where do you engage in it? I'm not asking, do you engage in gossip? You do. I'm just asking, where? We must repent of this. Words bring death. Thirdly, those who flatter their neighbors are spreading nets for their feet. What an interesting phrase. Those who flatter their neighbors are spreading nets for their feet. Now, these, this isn't gossip. This is words that are spoken directly to someone, probably with a smiling face, looking them in the eye, with a warm tone. I'm so appreciative of you. And, uh, or writing something to them that, that is full of praise and flattery. And on the surface, it looks like you're being encouraging. On the surface, what could be wrong with something that was so affirming and positive? But the problem here, according to Proverbs, is that you are spreading a net for their feet. They'll be caught in it. They'll be tripped by it. They'll be trapped by it, like being caught in a net. Why? Because flattery is inflation. It is false inflation. It is designed to appeal to the other person's ego. We all have an ego, especially us men. And women know that, by the way, guys. Why do we flatter other people? We do it for our own benefit. What benefits do we gain? Well, if you flatter someone, you can often gain influence on them. You can uh, make sure you secure and retain their friendship. If you flatter a person, you get them to like you, because we all like to be told how great we are. Flattery is actually a way of managing people. I've heard people say things, and I've seen people write things that, that I know are completely, blatantly untrue. But they're puffing up the other person's ego. Why is it a net for their feet? Because it gives them an unrealistic view of who they are. Then they're not prepared for reality. It's entrapment by flattery. Scoundrel, the next proverb says, a scoundrel plots evil, and on their lips it's like a scorching fire. We've already thought about this. False, flattering... Gossipy, critical words, unkind words can spread 
like a wildfire, only a small spark it takes to set fire to a forest causing untold damage. So such words must be checked at the source like we must check a spark or a little campfire that will soon burn down the forest. Check it at the source. If you see it, put a blanket on it. Don't let it spread. Stamp it out. Pour some water on it. Pour some cold water on it. Stop, stop that scorching blaze from spreading. And fifthly, uh, the last proverb on that section, with their mouths, the godless destroy their neighbors, but through knowledge the righteous escape. What a thought that is. Through our words, we have the power to destroy someone. And a neighbor, you may remember from last week, the word translated neighbor is, is often translated friend. It's the same word. In other words, a person who's close to you. A neighbor is someone who is spatially close. A friend is someone who's emotionally close. We can destroy those close to us. How do we do it? Through our words, our mouths, all these ways we've thought of. Now, I've been talking mostly today about speech, but I think we need to have a sidebar here about something that is not even in the mind of King Solomon and the others when they write these proverbs, which is the written word, particularly email, text messaging, messages on WhatsApp, and the various kinds of social media that we're part of whether it's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, I can't even keep up with them all. But there, we, we generate a lot of words and we read a lot of words and we pass on a lot of words in a written form, in electronic communication. And that is now a major source of destruction and, and a small source of good. A lot more death is coming through these electronic forms than needs to be or that it even has to be. Uh, we've, I, I was actually, by the way, by way of confession, so you know I'm, I'm not pointing the finger. I, uh, partly through being in a business career for some years and uh, for, through thinking that the way to deal with issues was to be very clear with people, I had a habit of writing a fairly hard-hitting but clear emails to people, including people in our leadership team. And a few years ago, maybe five years ago, a, a fellow pastor... Uh, sat me down and we had a meeting and at the end of the meeting he said this, this I won't say his name but he said it something like this G'day Mike, there's uh, something I want to talk to you about <laughs> and I said fair dinkum <laughs> and he said I've noticed that you uh, tend to write very harsh emails and it's very wounding to people uh, don't you think you should always try and speak to them and he was right. Five years ago, I repented of it. And I don't think I've done it since. I've tried not to. We now have a policy within our leadership team. We will aim never to discuss something by email, but we'll raise it, but we'll discuss it in person. We aim never to confront a person by email. We will aim to meet them. And you know the difference. If you've ever written something down and then you went to meet someone, and as you were looking at it and starting to read it, you realize this tone is off. I have to change it while I'm speaking. And sometimes you have to stop and just modify it and talk to the person. We've, we've made a policy not to complain by email. Always aim to speak. And never, ever send an email in anger. Never send an email in anger. Always sleep on it. Look at it again when you've had a night's sleep and the cold light of day. It might look very different. Because once it's sent, it's gone forever. 
You can't pull it back. And if you're in any doubt, ask a calm person to read it for you before you send, and they will probably correct it. Once it's sent, it's gone forever. Wherever did we get the idea in our culture that the way to address some issue was to send a person a long email? It's almost guaranteed to wound them, isn't it? There's no way they can hear your tone of voice. There's no way they can see your, the kindness in your eyes. And once it's received, it resides in the heart for, for a very long time. Words can bring life and they can bring death and you have the power of them. So finally, let's think about the source of words because we, we ought to be careful here just that we start thinking in merely behavioral ways, you know. Um, all right, I'm going to just sort of, I'm going to count to three before I speak, uh, you know, and I'm going to... Um, check all my written communication with, with my spouse or whatever. Now, those are all good things, but, but really we need to also go, go to the heart. Uh, wh what is the source of our words? And the source is what the Bible calls the heart, which is not just the, uh, that muscle that pumps your blood around your body, and it's not even what our culture calls you know, the heart, which is the emotions contrasting the head and heart. In the Bible, the heart is much more comprehensive, and it means the center of who you are. In the Bible, the heart thinks. In the Bible, the heart makes decisions. So the heart has, is the, controls the will. And in the Bible, the heart feels. And in the Bible, the, the heart is the motivational center of who you are. That's the heart, okay? So the source of our words in the Bible is, is our hearts. Look with me here at chapter 15, 23. The heart of the righteous weighs its answers but the mouth of the wicked gushes evil. The heart of the righteous weighs its answers. So this is talking about answers. This is somebody who has heard something and needs to respond to it, who is answering, and their heart is thinking about the weight of their answer before they say it. Weight. Let's think about your word, the weight of your words. There's some words that in one context are very light, but in another context are heavy. Some words that in one context might be quite soft or funny or sweet, in another context would be quite painful. How weighty your words are. If you're an older person talking to a younger person, your words have more weight, especially in some cultures. If you are a senior person, either organizationally or structurally or in your workplace, talking to a junior person, your words will have more weight. So weigh them. What will the impact be on the other person? And notice the contrast between the heart of the righteous, which is weighing the answers, and the mouth of the wicked, which is what? Gushing evil. <laughs> we were talking about this in our midweek group the other day, and one friend who is a scholar said, mm, very interesting, because gushing means volume and rapidity. Gushing words, volume, loads and loads of words coming out fast, like a gush, torrent. There's no filter. There's no control. The words are just spewing out, covering everybody with whatever's coming out. And people are being wounded. It's like one of those huge you know, machine guns and everyone's kind of running for cover. And the, these words are just coming. Oh, my word. The contrast between the wicked words and the righteous ones is about weighing your answers. So what, what do we have to do? Guard our hearts 
final proverb, guard your heart. Chapter 4, verse 23. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. That means your words flow from your heart too. We must guard our hearts. Our hearts, Jeremiah says, are deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can tame them? Your hearts are deceitful. But you're not at the mercy of your heart. If, you, if you've trusted Jesus Christ and you have the Holy Spirit, Spirit dwelling in you, you're not at the mercy of your heart. You can take care of your heart and guard it. You can guard its influences. You can know its temptations, its weaknesses. You can, you can study its besetting sins and guard them. And you can ensure good input to your heart. The input that we receive through music, through media, through things we listen to, through people who speak to us, shapes our heart. You can shape your heart through your daily devotions and spending time with the Lord each morning and evening in prayer and the word. You can, you can, you can guard your heart through spiritual friends who love you and kindly speak the truth to you. You can guard your heart through being enmeshed in gospel community, not forsaking and neglecting the meeting together as we seek to do here in life groups and on Sundays in gathered worship. We must guard our hearts for our tongue has the power of life and death and those who love it will eat its fruit. So you will, you will reap the harvest of what you say for good or ill. It's coming. You will eat that fruit and if your tongue is repeatedly gossiping slanderous, flattering, critical, deceptive, twisting reality, unkind, harsh. You will, you will actually reap that fruit in your own relationships and it doesn't taste good. But if, you're, if your lips, your mouth are full of kindness, apt words, honest speech, carefully chosen, gracious, calm, Words that build up, you will, you will eat the fruit of that too, and that, that, will, that will nourish you. Let me end with a, a short quote from our Lord Jesus himself as, before we pray. Jesus said, make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. An old version says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give account. Some of you are putting your things away. Please listen to this. This is Jesus speaking now, not me. I'm going to say it again. I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Let's pray.